Our scripture reading comes this evening from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. I was too busy recording my daughter, and I forgot about my job. Okay. I want to begin tonight by inviting you to think of a sleepless night that you've experienced in your life. I don't know about you, but if you have young children, you may be looking ahead to a sleepless night tonight if you've bought them something that needs to be assembled later this evening. In the last service, I was asking Mindy, and I think our, uh, our most sleepless night is when we bought the girls a play kitchen, and it took a lot of time to assemble that thing. And we got it assembled, and it was well worth it, but it was definitely a sleepless night. You know, we've all had sleepless nights, if you think about it. Mindy and I have been married for almost 22 years. Uh, We'll be married 22 years at the end of this week. And I can promise you that when it comes to sleepless nights, she has far more than I do. If there's a sick kid or a serious question about a child's health, it's a sleepless night. If there's a sick dog, sleepless night. Concerns about family or other things, sleepless night, problem or question that your brain just can't seem to let go, a sleepless night. Or maybe there's times that sleepless nights are caused because of good things. Like you're expecting something's going to happen that that really you're just anticipating. It's joy-filled. You're looking ahead to it. Whatever reason it is, we've all experienced them. I tried to think of a sleepless night that didn't involve a health scare or someone being sick in our house. And so I got to thinking about one that was kind of funny, and it was from my my, uh, middle school years. I was probably in about the seventh grade, and I was a Boy Scout. And, you know, in middle school, you start backpacking if you're in the Boy Scouts. And so in addition to my backpack and all the equipment that I needed, at some point it was determined to do all these trips we were going to do and hike in northern New Mexico and other places that I needed a cold weather sleeping bag. You've all seen them. It's a mummy bag, you know, so it's your feet, it's really tight, and so you really can't move your feet around, and then you zip into this thing, and then you're like a sausage in a casing. Well, you've seen them, right? And they don't weigh anything, and they're perfect for backpacking. And so uh, I already asked, but in Las Cruces, there was this Oshman's. There was Oshman's Sporting Goods in the mall. And so I remembered, if you needed anything for camping in Las Cruces in my childhood, you went to Oshman's. And so I remember going and looking at all the mummy bags. I remember speaking to the salesman that oversaw that area. And I specifically remember him saying that the bag we were buying would keep me warm up to five degrees in my underwear. And first, I thought, I'm a middle school guy. I'm, not, I'm definitely going to be wearing more than my underwear in a tent with other boys. But anyway, 
But also, he said, if you add more and more layers, the colder it got, you could stay warm. It all sounded great. And so as my parents bought the sleeping bag, I remember thinking, this is great. This bag's not going to weigh anything. It's not going to make my backpack overly heavy. It's going to keep me warm at night. How much better can it get? I thought it was a win-win. What I didn't anticipate or think about was the unintended physical slash kind of psychological effect that that bag had on me the first camping trip I took it on. Here's why. At home, I had an Afghan blanket on my bed that a good friend of our family had made for me. It was a twin bed. The blanket was a queen, so you can imagine it's like doubled over twice. And when you're using a handmade Afghan, those aren't the lightest blankets, aren't they? And so I'd gotten used to burying myself in the weight of this Afghan and sleeping great under the weight of that blanket. I had never even thought or anticipated that my body had gotten used to that weight. And my body associated that weight with being warm. And that's exactly the opposite of how a zero-weight backpacking sleeping bag works, right? It didn't weigh a thing. And so as I got in that first cold night, I think it was a two-night camping trip. I'm sure it was around Cloudcroft or Riodoso. I zipped up to go to sleep. I thought, man, this is going to be great. And I didn't sleep at all that night. Because my body didn't feel the weight of the, the mummy bag. And so I would doze off, and then my body would wake me back up thinking that I was freezing, except really I was sweating like a pig in that thing. But I felt cold. And the reason I felt cold is because my body wasn't ready. And it was a sleepless night. And I think we all know what these sleepless nights are. And I think we can all think about the story of Mary and Joseph as we read it in the Gospel of Luke. And we can see how their first night and the nights to come were probably anything but sleep. They, they were sleepless as well. They weren't restful. They've arrived in Bethlehem after their 90-mile journey on foot from their home in the Galilean hills to the small town outside of Jerusalem. They've done so to fulfill the edict by Caesar Augustus that an official count of all of the Roman Empire would be conducted, which meant that everyone had to go home to register. And so unknowingly to the pagan Caesar, his order, his census, God is using him to fulfill his plan for redeeming humanity, for redeeming you and me. Caesar has been used to now ensure that the prophets and the words that they spoke 400 years, 500 years and before are now being fulfilled when it comes to the Messiah. One prophet that comes to mind, I mean, there are a number of prophets that you can read that tell us about the coming of the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah and Malachi and, and, and Zechariah. But if you look in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah tells us hundreds of years before Caesar made this decree of how God was going to make uh, his plan to come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for the one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So hundreds of years before Jesus, Micah has said that the, pro, the one that was coming would be coming from Bethlehem. From Bethlehem. God had appeared to Mary in the city of Nazareth, 
So in the far north, 90 miles away, God had told her that she would become pregnant with a child, with the Son of God. God had told her husband, who also lived in Nazareth, that he was to take her and make her to be his wife, and that the child within her would be the Son of God himself. All of these things are happening, but Mary and Joseph still have to get to go to, they still have to get to Bethlehem. Because they're not just going to Bethlehem for fun. It took Caesar's action to make sure that the prophecy was fulfilled because God can and does use all people to accomplish his plan and his purpose even when those people, their decisions are not of God or have not oriented of God. He can use them for his glory. And so Micah foretells this. That it's where Bethlehem is, where the newborn king is going to be born. Not in, in a palatial home of the chief priests and the temple officials of Jerusalem. Not in any of the grandest palaces that you can imagine that Herod is building for himself and for his family all around Israel. Not even in the center of the known world in that time, which happened to be in Rome, where Caesar presided and where he lived. For hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Micah has said it is in Bethlehem, a town almost too small to be recognized, a blip on the map compared to the grand city of Jerusalem. It would be here that God is sending his, the deliverer of the world. And so if you read the Gospels, what they tell us is that Mary and Joseph came to this town and sought accommodations for their stay. They needed a place for the baby to be born. And since the beginning of the Christian church, scholars and biblical theologians have debated where Mary and Joseph searched to stay. We really don't know. Did they stop at a home of a relative, perhaps a distant relative, who is also a descendant of David, who, may, who they were related to in order to visit and to see if they had room in their home for them? Possibly. Did they stop at a collection of modest shacks? Perhaps around a courtyard, a common courtyard where people would sit as they traveled and where they would spend the night. Was it just a cave in the back of someone's home where animals would spend the night, where they would stay safe from the elements and from anything that could cause them harm? We don't really know exactly. But what we do know is that when Mary and Joseph said yes to God in his plan, I don't think they ever anticipated that saying yes to God and his plan would lead them to Bethlehem. I don't think that they ever anticipated that when they got to Bethlehem, there would not be a place for Jesus to be born. And I don't think that those who turned Mary and Joseph away had any idea that the ones that they were turning away are the ones that they were praying for. I don't think they understood that as they prayed for a Messiah, as they prayed for God to deliver them, as they prayed for God to work, they didn't know that Mary and Joseph were the ones that were bringing the one that they were anticipating. And so there's a lot about this story. Tradition tells us that Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem as the day was ending. And so my guess is at whatever places they stopped, the people that answered the door had a lot of things going on in their mind as this young couple stood before them asking for room. I don't think that the innkeeper realized their role 
in fulfilling what God had planned, what God had ordained, what needed to happen, as we read in Luke later where Jesus says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That happened to Jesus when he was being born, and it also happened to Jesus in his adult ministry, did it not? I think the innkeepers viewed Mary and Joseph as a disruption as they were working to make sure that everyone else was taken care of. But that's what the coming of Jesus was in this world today, too. As he was a disruption. And he continues to be a disruption of the world today. Sometimes we feel the greatest presence of God and the greatest relationship with God with us when things aren't at their best, don't we? Maybe we feel the greatest presence of God when, when things are going wrong or when things are happening that are out of our control or just when things are disrupting what we feel needs to happen or what we have planned to happen. See, friends, I want you to know that God meets us in those places. That's when He chooses to enter the world. That's when He chooses to enter into our lives. That's when He chooses to give us the opportunity to be in relationship with Him as he can and he does use those times that are disruptions for us to accomplish his plan, to fulfill his, his purpose for us, and to help us to grow in our relationship with him. He uses the disruptions. Now, I'm not saying that I believe that God who is good and God who loves us and God who wants to have the best for us, I don't believe that, that he causes bad things to happen in our lives, but I believe that sin causes things to happen in our lives, and God uses those times as disruptions for us to grow closer with Him. As He demonstrates to us His power, as He demonstrates to us His presence, and as He gives us His glory. Because that's where God meets us. As He can and He does enter our lives into the times when things are perfect and into times when we're experiencing the greatest disruptions. I mean, look at the Scripture. Old Testament and New. There are times when God has come to the people who have served Him, who have been in relationship with Him, who have followed Him, who have done whatever He has called them to do. And He's come to them when things were perfect and He's disrupted them and He's used that disruption for His good. Let's look at a couple of them. Uh, there's a pagan a pagan man, a, a farmer minding his herds who heard the voice of God telling him he'd take his wife and everything he owns and to go to the land of Canaan. God promised this man, if you choose to enter into this relationship, I will bless you and your descendants will be a blessing for all people. There was a prince of Egypt who had to flee to the land of Midian. In Midian, he works for his father-in-law to tend the flocks of sheep and goats until God appeared to him in a burning bush. And called out to him to go to Egypt. There was a young man tending his father's flocks who was summoned back to the family home. Little did he know that when he arrived, all his brothers would be gathered there, and a prophet would anoint his head with oil, telling him that he was to be the next king of Israel. Or even a high ranking member of the Sanhedrin a respected member of the Pharisees who received the greatest teaching possible from the greatest teacher of his time who was met on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself as he was asked, why are you persecuting me? See, friends, God uses disruptions 
even like the Roman census, to be the thing that leads to his work being done and the things that lead to his plans being fulfilled. Because even in the disruptions, God, does, God meets us where we don't expect him. He uses those times and those places to provide opportunities for us to trust in him and to grow in him. And so like Mary, like Joseph, and even the innkeeper, we are disrupted by Jesus. We can be disrupted by him when we invite God to be closer and deeper in our relationship with us. We can be disrupted when the invitation to live out our faith challenges us because of the cost. We're disrupted when following Jesus challenges our relationships. We're disrupted when we discover that Jesus expects us to form our relationship and our faith around Him, not forming Him and our faith around us. We're disrupted when Jesus shows us that a faith lived in response to Him is all about Him, and it's not about us. Jesus asks us to leave our nets behind and to follow Him. He asks us to leave our ambitions in order to join him on his mission. He tells us to leave our idols behind and to allow us to recreate him, or recreate us in his image. His disruptions lead us to a life of faith, a life of relationship, and a life with him that far surpasses anything that any one of us can do for ourselves. Jesus comes into the world and into our lives when we least expect him. He entered the world as a tiny baby when the world did not anticipate his coming. And he invites us to find a home in him, the one who had no place to lay his head. The Gospels tell us that he has gone ahead to prepare a place for each of us. Because he is now our rest, he can be our comfort, he can be our joy. The one and able and through whom we are able to find hope and the only one who can provide us true peace. We just have to make room for Him. Room in our hearts. Room in our minds. Room to allow Him to work and to lead us into a relationship that is deeper than anything we can do on our own. In the end, the innkeeper made room for Jesus. Our prayer this Christmas is that we might each be able to do the same.